you want to open your Bibles, we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 9, and then jumping to 9, verse 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then we're going to turn to chapter 9, verse 1 to 15. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written, They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, 
Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thought Suna's Grace did such a, a lovely job with this prop of a present. I'm going to bring it up to the front and have it out there because I think it's a great visual reminder of the gift of receiving and giving. And uh, again, uh, just want to add my welcome as one of the pastors on the eldership team here. Um, thank you for joining us this Sunday. And um, if you're a visitor here uh, and it's your first time at Grace Church, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. And as you can tell, we're talking about money, and that isn't directed to you as a visitor. Um, you get a free pass on that. But I hope that what we're looking at today, and particularly as we come to Scripture, will challenge all of us, wherever we are. Even if you're here with big questions about God and you're not sure that you follow this Jesus we've been talking about as the one who gives the best gift for life um, in eternity. I welcome those questions. It's great you're here with us. Um, but please do let the talk of finance and giving um, for Grace Church go over your head, but not in general. Think about your generosity in giving. I wonder how you would rate the UK. Uh, one star, five stars when it comes to generosity. Um, the Charities Aid Foundation, CAF, have released their report for last year's giving figures. And uh, for the UK, it's estimated that £12.7 billion in donations were made in 2022. £12.7 billion. Um, that's also an increase from the year before. But to put that, con that figure, £12.7 billion, into some sort of contrast, uh, for the same period, so from 20 April 21 through to March 22, uh, the UK's gross gambling yield in Great Britain, so all the money made from legal forms of gambling uh, for the same period of time was 14 billion. So we earned more in gambling than we gave. Weirdly, the year before that, it was exactly the same amount, 12.7 billion. But that's just to show you some contrasts. And I wonder what you think was the cause that gripped people's hearts the most last year when it came to giving. Any ideas what the UK loved to give towards? Can shout them out? Sorry? Yeah, so that's one. Any others? There we go. So the bakers are on the top points there because Ukraine and the, the overseas uh, relief, particularly in the conti uh, conflict, spiked in March and April last year. That was the two months where actually UK donations went high for a particular cause. But on the whole, the UK gives over 28% to animal welfare. It's consistently the top giving area. Fascinating. The UK is a generous nation. And whilst generosity is a fairly straightforward concept to understand, isn't it? It was, we were talking to the children. They got it. You receive stuff. You want to share stuff. It's a bit harder to give stuff. But it's not straightforward to do. It's easier to describe a generous person than it is to be one. 
And in the church context, I, sadly, it isn't very different. The, the good news is that actually when it comes to religious giving, and that's quite a broad category in the UK, 11% of UK charitable donations are towards religious organisations. But whilst that's smaller in terms of what other charity sectors get, those giving, those donations are on the whole £30 more a month than what people are giving to other charities per month. So in that way, faith-based giving does show itself to be more generous, even in the macro when it feels a bit smaller in contrast to other areas. But in 1973, there was a social experiment that showed this issue of uh, generosity and how hard it is to sort of apply it. There were some theological students at a college who were asked to prepare a talk on the famous parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10. And uh, when they arrived at class, they were told that they were needed to go to another building elsewhere on campus to deliver their talks. And some of them were told that the audience were already there and waiting. Now, on the way to the venue, the students came across an actor who was slumped on the pavement. They didn't know, obviously, they were an actor, but slumped on the pavement, moaning and pretending to be in distress. Well, you can guess what happened. 53% of the students about to give a talk on the Good Samaritan, stopped and helped the man. It's good, isn't it? Just over half. Now, the variable that seemed to have the most impact was whether or not they were told they had a time pressure. So those who were told you've got to get there to do the talk were less likely to stop. Now, there's no judgments there because you can rational and you can see people going, well, I've got to do this, there are people waiting, this is also service, which it is. But stopping, doing the generous thing, even taking the cost of being late to a prior engagement and being shamed for that or feeling you've let them down, that's a cost you have to carry for the greater privilege of serving in this unseen context. And my own sense is that this, this is a sort of major challenge we face when it comes to giving. We don't realize how much capacity we have to be generous, actually. More often than not, we feel time poor. We feel resource poor. We feel financially poor. Um, the head of the FIEC, so Grace Church is part of a fellowship called the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, catchily just called FIEC. But that is an association of independent churches that can support each other and receive uh, help and training and different um, inputs together. The head there, John Stevens, put it like this. I think one issue we have in our culture is that many people don't actually feel very wealthy and so life feels pressured. They're trying to pay their mortgage, pay for their cars, care for their children. Although in objective terms, in the light of history and the world as it is today, they are remarkably wealthy. I don't think many people feel wealthy, and therefore they don't feel like they have got much they could give. And I hope just one simple thing, as we look at scripture today, that will change. You will feel different. That's my prayer. On this gift day, as we consider how we can support the gospel work here at Grace Church, I've only got that one simple aim, to encourage us to see God's incredible generosity and to live our lives in response, to feel his goodness. And as we're in 2 Corinthians 8, taking a pause from Exodus, 
There's an example here to inspire in those first seven verses of chapter 8. Now, a bit of background on 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing this letter at about 55, 56 AD, and he's, he's writing it from northern Greece to the Corinthian Christians who are in southern Greece. And in this section of the letter, he gets very practical about financial support for other Christians. Specifically, the Christians he has in mind are the poor and needy Christians in Jerusalem. There was a severe famine in Palestine 10 years previously, AD 46, and it affected the Christians living in Jerusalem hugely. And Paul had, at that point, collected money through the churches in Antioch, so a Gentile church, and taken this gift of support to the church in Jerusalem. And when he met with Peter, James, and John, who were the leaders there in Jerusalem, they asked him not to forget the poor. You can read this in Galatians chapter 2. And so here we are, 10 years on, and Paul is true to his word. Still helping the Gentile churches not forget their brothers and sisters, who in all likelihood they've never met in Jerusalem. Ten years on, he's still raising funds to support the Jew, uh, uh, to the Gentiles, uh, from the Gentiles to the Jewish Christians, the poor and needy there. What a massive sign of love and unity. Gentile Greek Christians giving generously to support Jewish believing Christians. And so to spur the Corinthians into action, Paul starts in verse 1 of chapter 8 by telling them about the work of God's grace that's gone on in northern Greece. So let's have a look at those verses. Verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, the northern Greeks, that is, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica. In the midst of the very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty whirled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Paul had had a complicated but loving relationship with the Corinthian church. It was a church with all sorts of issues, uh, factions, immorality, arrogance, And in it all, Paul wants them to see one thing that should direct them all the time, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of both his first letter and the second letter that we have in Scripture, the cross of Jesus, which is the standard by which everything is to be judged. And that's why he points out the example of the Philippian and Thessalonian Christians here. They had little cash, and yet they begged, verse 4, for the privilege of being part of this relief effort for their distant Christian family in Jerusalem. And, we're told, on top of their poverty, they were facing difficulties, probably strong opposition for being Christians, and practically in terms, what does that mean in daily life? Uh, At this point, it doesn't seem that there was a huge amount of violence against Christians, but it would have been in societal ways, like not trading with them cutting their business out of things, ostracizing, facing difficulties. But what are we told? They had so much joy in the gospel, they gave beyond their means to help. 
Now, I imagine this was out of savings, that which could have been used to help them if they got ill or out of work or wanted to buy another cow to expand a bit and have some more income streams. Essentially, they took prayerful risks with their giving, Paul saying. They gave like the widow with the two coins, as Nigel already mentioned, giving her gift at the temple that Jesus sees in Luke 21 putting all she had, as Jesus put it, out of her poverty into this gift. Now, these verses 2 to 5 are an excellent answer, I think, to the lie of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth teaching, which is spreading far and wide. You don't give to get more of God as if he's a Ponzi scheme. He is not a stock market promising to triple your money as long as you have faith and somehow manifest the future material blessing that you want. No way. That is so counter to what Paul is saying here. These Christians are giving sacrificially and are in poverty. The affliction is severe, but their joy is abundant. Yes, there will be strife, there will be sickness, there will be unemployment, there'll be times where we'll be feeling stretched to our limits. The kids are going wild. There are global problems that are threatening peace and are on our minds as well. But if our joy can only come when all those things have gone, when we see them resolved, then I'll tell you the truth, we will be a very sad, frustrated and hardened, joyless church. These Christians gave in a way that was more than they could give. And notice, Paul never mentions amounts or percentages in these chapters. Instead, he mentions God's immeasurable grace overflowing into radical generosity. So practically in verse 11, the Corinthians are called to finish the collection they started a year ago. Sorry, so he picks up the work that they'd already started, um, in the, it was just outside the bit that we had in our reading, but verse 11 there. The Corinthians are called to finish the collection they started a year ago, to get ready and give according to your means. According to your means. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds similar to what happened in Antioch in Acts 11 verse 29, where they gave each according to their ability, we're told, to meet the needs of the people. Now this, therefore, is a, a matter of conscience. It's a matter of prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit. Of course, you can decide to give from what you have left over at the end of the month or the end of the year, almost as an afterthought. Of course, you can do it that way. But realize that deep down, that's an outworking of your theology. That shows you what you really think about God, what you believe about God. You see, the, as Paul's showing us here, the joy-filled believer is gripped by God's grace. They will prioritize the giving to the aim of stretching and strengthening what they can give to go further. Rather than asking, how much do my wants require? It's after which, you know, I've sorted out what I need, so there we go, God, I can think about giving to you and your work. The Macedonians asked first, how much do your needs require? 
before I go about fulfilling my wants. Can you see how the gospel reverses everything? It turns it upside down on its head. The story is told of a Christian businessman who was traveling through Korea. This story comes from a book that I'd love to give away for you if you haven't already got a copy. There are some here on the table uh, just to the um, exit doors and downstairs on our connect table and also in the reception. It's called Sacrifice by Simon Jabot. And this story is in that book that Simon tells. The story is told of a Christian businessman who was traveling through Korea. In a field, he saw a young man pulling a simple plow and he was helped by an older man holding the handles and guiding the plow. The businessman said to the missionary who was showing him around and he was staying with, I I suppose these people are very poor. Just an observation. The missionary agreed. Yes, those two men in particular happened to be Christians. And when the church was being built, they were keen to give something towards it, but they didn't have any money. So they decided to sell their one and only ox and give the proceeds to the church. This spring, they are pulling the plow themselves. The businessman was quiet in thought and then said, that must have been a real sacrifice. But the missionary answered him, they did not call it that. They thought themselves fortunate that they had an ox to sell. Isn't it interesting that hardship and affliction can actually be a magnifying glass of grace? It can be the the glasses we really need to see things from God's perspective. When we look to believers in other nations, sometimes much poorer than ourselves, we are humbled by their giving, aren't we? I know I am. I need to hear these stories. I love hearing from our mission partners of how they're working, like Karem and Daniel others in in harder, tougher circumstances, giving all they have. It should spur us to excel in the gift of giving, verse 7. How often do we pray for that gift? Paul's telling the church, look, you've got a load of gifts. How about excelling in this one? Giving, generosity, letting go of things. That's why I love the logo that um, Jez designed and Dan's worked on with this brochure as well. Hands just open, both to receive, but also to throw out there. But where does this power come from? Where does this power come from to serve this way? Well, that's why the next uh, example is so important. Because there's an action that empowers and it's there. In verses 8 to 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Now, consider the grace, the undeserved sacrificial generosity of our Lord Jesus towards each other. That's where Paul's going. His wealth is eternal. The glory and pleasure of heaven in eternity passed, but for our sake... For our salvation, as well as the Corinthians, he became poor. That meant he was born into a poor tradesman's family in an occupied, oppressed province of Rome. He was a refugee with his family to Egypt before returning to a northern backwater town called Nazareth, 
where for the majority of his earthly life, Jesus simply worked hard as a carpenter, looking after his family, living, obedient, living in obedience to his heavenly Father, and getting ready to save the world from our sin. Jesus became a, a roaming preacher, a miracle worker, dependent on other women and men to look after him. He didn't own a home or have an income to rely on. So he's both the one who gives, but he's also demonstrating dependence on others, receiving. His mission peaked in being arrested, unjustly tried, tortured, and then brutally crucified for us, enduring the poverty of our judgment and hell on the cross, and being resurrected to new life. Why? so that we might become rich in his wealth, enjoying the forgiveness he gives, the fullness of love and life with him forever. As Jacob answered, eternal life. There's the riches. Now, if we're willing, this cross-shaped love transforms us entirely. Heart, mind, soul. Words, actions. It's a lifetime's work. To be like our Savior, selflessly, happily, contentedly generous, not gripped in the vice of get more, not blinded and bound by the effects of wealth, but grasped with gratitude to lay down our lives. What we have, what we've been entrusted with by God, to give that for the sake of others. And yes, that's financial. And yes, that's about our abilities. And yes, that's about our time. And yes, that's about our possessions. And yes, that's about our career plans. And yes, that's about raising families. All of it for the Lord. And yet, we need to focus on money because that's kind of the liquid form of showing God's love. It's the means. It gets stuff done. So how are we to give, finally? And this is where I think chapter 9 and verses 6 to 11 are particularly insightful. Paul has been very clear. There's loads more we could pull out. But between um, verses 11 down to chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 5, it's very practical. There's some great points there practically. He's got a team who are going to go there with Titus, probably Luke and another believer, all agreed by the northern Greek churches to come down to Corinth to help with the collection. So there's transparency, there's accountability, there's all those um, checks in place. No one's going to be swindling a bit of money off on the side like Judas did with the common purse. There's clear transparency. This gift will be given to these guys who are going to take it to Jerusalem. It's going to go to the right people. And we want you guys to be ready, be prepared. So how do we give in verses 6 to 11? Well, there's a few pointers here. One, very obviously, generously, verse 6. The image here is agricultural. And even if you've never worked on a farm, the logic's clear. You get this. You've got to scatter a lot of seed abundantly to see a harvest. I know this when it comes to patching up my lawn. You know, you can't just pour out a little bit from the box and go, well, I'll save that for later. It's all got to go on the bare patches because you just don't know how much will take. And when the spring comes and the summer comes, it goes, yes, that was worth it. Look at that lovely patch that's now green. And that's the extent of my gardening skills. I've got to 
shake the box lavishly. We've got to do the same as believers with our giving. Just as Jesus sowed seed of his word generously, just as he ministered to the sick and those in distress. And we neither, we're neither casual or impulsive, but decisive. Did you hear that in verse 5 of chapter 9? So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. It's not casual or impulsive. It's, it's decisive. It's thoughtful. It's cheerful and not grudging in verse 5. And I know whilst the tithe in churches, we talk of tithes and 10%, it's not binding. Paul never mentions it in the New Testament. Jesus never talks of it. But if maybe that can be a helpful guide as a, a minimum for us. And if that isn't particularly difficult, then maybe we should be eager to go further to go beyond that. And in his first letter, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs the church to be systematic. So in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 3, he says specifically, uh, set aside a sum of money each week on the first day of the week to give. Now, in our age of mobile banking and mobile apps and online stuff, transfers can be done so easily, almost thoughtlessly in one sense. But you can set a direct debit up, a monthly giving, using the QR code on the back of the brochures in less time than it takes you to walk down halfway to the Curry Mile. You know, cheerful people line up the room, don't they, as well? Their warmth, their smile can be infectious. And our attitude to giving must reflect God's character. He is the ultimate cheerful giver. So there's generosity, there's thoughtfulness, there's cheerfulness. Verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Verse 8, God is the storehouse of the seed, supplying the seed. And as we take on generosity portrayed here in the gospel with our giving, the Lord Jesus who oversees his harvest field will increase our harvest of righteousness will multiply our seed and our resources for yet more giving. And it's interesting that Paul here uses a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. When you read the whole psalm, it is one of the blessed person living in obedience with the Lord, even in tough times. So it sounds like the same context the northern Greeks were facing. It's a fascinating psalm reinforcing that freely giving to God's kingdom will last for eternity. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now that's not a way of saying they're earning their forgiveness of God's love. No, they're living in response to all he has given. Paul taught the righteousness of Christ is counted to believers, all believers. 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says there quite clearly earlier in the letter, verse 21 of chapter 5, I'll just find it to read it. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that righteousness is not going anywhere. It, it, it's, it's forever. It's been given to us. We're liberated to give without fear. We don't need to cling to these earthly things 
And so that righteousness in action is, as Jesus put it, it's storing up treasure in heaven. That's how he says it in Matthew 6. It's using our worldly wealth to receive a welcome in eternal dwellings in the parable he told in Luke 16 by the people we've impacted with that giving, being there in glory, praising Jesus. As we sow our money, our resources into gospel ministry, that prioritizes proclaiming Jesus is saving good news. That helps churches and missionaries flourish. That seeks in love to meet people's spiritual needs, their eternal needs. Well, on the final day, that means there will be more people worshiping Christ in glory. And we have a share in that. John Piper, in the very wise way that he writes, openly admitted to his church family this when he was talking about a giving campaign they had back in 2003. He said, I ask the Lord, I ask the Lord that he will prosper only those who treasure Christ above all and who have their hearts set on living simply and giving more and more away. Otherwise, prosperity would be deadly. He's right. And you see where this leads in glorious conclusion. We've got the eternal focus, and that eternal focus is reinforced by thankfulness. You can just hear it oozing out of all those verses, 11 to 15. Four times in five verses, Paul states the ultimate result of their offering is going to be thanksgiving, praise to God, more and more. And that's the heart of all Christian giving. Verse 11, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, this service that you perform is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Verse 13, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity. Verse 15, thanks be to God for this indescribable or inexpressible gift. You can't... It's so big, but it leads to more praise and thanksgiving. So the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem receiving food and provision, well, they would have raised their voices in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for the northern Greek Christians we've never met. For those being able to read the Bible in their own heart language now will be praising God for the translators who have worked on that. The joy of hearing his word for them. For the teenager who's had the gospel explained to them clearly and lovingly at youth group. And that they've come to to praise God in their old latter years. For that faith. And for that youth leader who invested in them. And thanking God for putting them in their lives. And investing time and resource to do that rather than just having a chilled out Friday or Sunday night. No, they're thankful. You see, Christian giving grows more praise and gratitude to God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It will resound in full volume for all eternity. And as I close, I just wanted to share a quote from one of our senior members, Donald Lees, who some of you will remember. There's a a video, you can look up this resource, The Generosity Project. Just Google Generosity Project. Matthias Media have produced a series of teachings and uh, videos. And Donald was interviewed on this video. You can read a little bit of a 
uh, watch a bit of a testimony as to how he supported ministry here at Grace. Donald is now in glory. He went home to the Lord in 2021. He said, I have everything I need. Student work has been my life. He used to work at the university. He used to go to China frequently, and his suitcase was loaded with Bibles every time. (laughs) Money, as well as everything else I have, our health, our abilities, is something God has entrusted to us. Money, everything. Something God has entrusted to us, like the parable of the talents, and he will be wanting to know at the last judgment what we did with it. Whatever you've got, your gifts, abilities, and your money, you put it on the table. We've been blessed. We are blessed. Not just by Donald, but by countless others who have said, at this time in this place, an expression of my gratitude to the Lord and my commitment to seeing his work through this particular little church here in Manchester is to give out of the overflow of all he's given and is giving us. At Grace Church, we want to cheerfully live up to our name. Simple as that. For as long as the Lord Jesus keeps us on earth, I'm praying that each of us finds for a lifetime ahead that we find ourselves prayerfully asking as disciples, how much can I give for Jesus' glory? We're asking that question year by year. And I hope our answer, joyfully and courageously, is more Lord. More Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the abundant God of all grace. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we see the ultimate gift of salvation and life poured out, giving up his riches for poverty that we might share in his riches in eternal life. Thank you that you're our provider and sustainer. Thank you, Father, that you've brought this little church into being to play our part in building your kingdom. So please continue to sustain and provide us and change our hearts that we would be joyful, courageous, thankful, thoughtful givers for gospel work. In Jesus' name, amen.